Light a campfire and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond fireside chats. Welcome to Leave Our World a Better Place. My name is Kasha and my guest today is Simon Naylor, Conservation Manager at and Beyond Pinder Private Game Reserve. Simon will be speaking about why it is necessary to manage wildlife reserves in the modern world and will give us insight into what this job entails at a game reserve as unique and diverse as Pinda. Simon, you've had a really long career in conservation. Can you take us through where your career started and how it all began for you? Yeah, it has been a long period with and beyond. I studied nature conservation in Cape Town when I finished school and my goal or dream was always to work in, in wildlife management or, or, or formal conservation. When I finished my studies, I unfortunately at the time struggled to sort of find a job in the organizations that I wanted to work with, specifically Kazan Wildlife. Yeah, I sort of turned my attention to guarding or field guarding or ranging as they called it then and not knowing anything about it, I thought that might be a stepping stone into sort of more formal conservation, which I had studied. I heard of a, a company called Conservation Corporation and uh, went for an interview with them back in 95. Yeah, I was selected to go on a, a, a sort of a selection course at Londolozi. Uh, I think it was around April or, or February uh, 1995. And yeah, and I was very fortunate to be selected, uh, one of the few that that managed to pass the selection course and I was posted down at Pinder Private Game Reserve. Back then it was Pinder Resource Reserve. I didn't know anything about Pinder, and, um, but it was kind of where I really wanted to be in Zululand. And so I flew into Pinder in, in about May 1995 and that's where I started as a guide. Well, back then it was Nyala Lodge. It later changed its name to Mountain Lodge. Yeah, I never looked back. And, and since then, I've been working for and beyond, obviously, as a, as a guard and a mentor and a head ranger at, at Pinder, and later as a ranger trainer and uh, operations manager in East Africa for, for four or five years. After that, it was sort of more into the sort of tourism side as operations manager for uh, Botswana Expeditions, now under Canvas. And then, yeah, I mean, my heart was set on always coming back and doing conservation work formally. And so when a position opened up in 2006, I jumped at the opportunity and, and put my application in and, and was fortunate to become the conservation manager at, at Pinda, coming on for 14 years now. So it's been a, yeah, a, long, uh, a long history with with. Uh, involved in tourism and, and conservation and, and all with and beyond. What was it that first attracted you to conservation and drew you into that particular field? Well, it started, I think, as a kid. I always knew that I wanted to do something in the bush or, or with wildlife, uh, even from a young age. I had a, a love for the bush and, and animals, and Cape Town was pretty far. I grew up uh, in, in KZN, uh, just north of Durban. At that time, the only courses that they had for nature conservation were in Cape Town and Pretoria. I managed to be selected for the course mm -hmm. in Cape Town, and so that's where I went to, to study. But I guess, uh, yeah, from a very young age, I mean, I can't remember when, but I always wanted to certainly work in Zuland uh, specifically. That was where my heart was. Just uh, had a passion for, for the environment, for being outdoors, 
and wanting to protect it. So from a very young age, and, and obviously that followed me through school and then into university and then obviously through guiding and and uh, tourism and then later now more sort of formal conservation. Mm. It's certainly been a very long time that you've been with and beyond. Was there anything particular that made you choose the company or that's made you stay with the company for such a long time? Choosing the company back then, the little that I knew of and beyond or, or, or conservation corporation was that they were quite visionary. You know, Londolozzi was was one of the first game reserves or, or private reserves and lodges that, that were doing sort of high-end tourism and, and game drives for, for tourists. And back then, as a tourist in a wildlife bush area, you had to go to a state game reserve. So I think they were the leaders in the field and certainly in the tourism sector, which sort of drew me to them. You know, I'd always wanted to work for the best. And and then as I started with Conservation Corporation or Conscorp, as they used to be called then, I sort of really believed in the ethos of the company and, and their their vision. It really hasn't changed over the years. And I guess working with and for and beyond, I've always felt that I've been able to make a difference, whether it's community social upliftment or conservation or protecting endangered species or showing visitors uh, the natural world. And along the way, I've, I've learned a lot. I've had incredible experiences I've been uh, fortunate to go to some amazing places and done some incredible projects, been involved in some amazing groundbreaking conservation projects. So I think all of that has kept me with and beyond. And, you know, and I truly believe in, in the values of the company, you know, the care of the land, wildlife and people. And I think being able to make a difference every day has, has, has kept, me, kept me with and beyond all these years. Now, I know that these days you're involved in, in conservation all over the place and you do a lot of management and a lot of consultation. The core of what you are at the moment is a, a reserve manager at Pinda. What does that actually mean? What does a reserve manager do? And what does it take to manage a reserve the size of Pinda, which is quite a sizable piece of land for a private game reserve? It's really trying to protect uh, an area that that is as you say is quite large and it, and it's grown and and we have plans to try and expand it even further and and then everything that is involved in trying to conserve or protect that land there's a team of people that are, are doing the same you know it's leading a group of people that all have the same vision in in, in what we want to do and, and goals that we want to achieve so that's the first thing I think is just leading a great bunch of people uh, and a great team at Pinda. Ecologically, just trying to manage it as, as best as we can. And that entails a really wide variety of things, you know, from monitoring and research to physical management. That's the management of the land and, and the vegetation and, and the animals. Obviously, a big part is securing the area. So the security is quite a large component. We have a big APU team. We have a lot of visitors and people coming in and out the gates. And then the communities are integral in in protecting the land as well. And, and so it's to get their buy-in, get their support. There's a number of communities that, that actually own land inside Pinda. It's dealing with them on a daily or weekly or monthly basis as, as our landlords. And then assisting the Africa Foundation in their efforts to, to develop and upskill and making sure that the communities continuously see Pinda, that they see it positively. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's all of that and much more. And then obviously just trying to make it financially viable. I, mean, I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we face 
making sure that we can cover our costs and maintaining a, a park this size there's a lot of factors involved and a lot of things going on and they all cost money and um, the model of this this park is it takes money you know to protect it and so we've got to make sure that it's financially viable and into the future that it can we can afford to to look after it so it's also like a business you've got to meet your your costs uh, you've got to find revenue and hopefully make it sustainable Absolutely. That's a, it's a really complex role and there's a lot of elements to that. For those of our listeners who aren't really familiar with this model of game reserves or wildlife management, you've spoken about managing wildlife populations, managing vegetation. Can you explain why it's necessary to do all of those things in managing a game reserve? Many, many, many years ago, centuries ago, when there was far less people on the earth, but specifically in, in Africa, Wildlife and, and natural areas managed themselves. There was, I guess, a kind of harmony. The natural processes that sort of govern how things worked just sort of happened. I think as human populations have grown, and, and I mean, we now are sitting with over 7 or 8 billion people on Earth. Unfortunately, these wild areas have shrunk and become much smaller. And in many cases, they've become islands and surrounded by people. And so... Natural processes where what we say, you know, what we always say nature sort of runs its course are not there anymore. And so the regulating factors naturally that would have occurred in an open system where animals are free to roam and they're no longer there because you've either surrounded them by humans or you've had to put fences up like here at Pinda. The fences are really just to keep people and, and animals apart as much as possible because there's, there's always conflict. And so you've got these sort of relatively small areas. Uh, some areas are bigger, like the Kruger National Park, but Pinda's relatively is quite small. And so you have to then step in and, and control some of the, the, the natural processes or, or, or mimic them uh, as such. So in other words, things like fire, maintaining the sort of herbivore predator you know, relationship. Our management has become a lot more intense. I think as a, as a, as a rule of thumb, you know, the smaller your area, the more intensively you have to manage it. And as your area becomes bigger and bigger, you can sort of manage it far less or, or take a more hands-off approach. So, so that's, that's kind of the principle around it is, is, you know, nature can't really take its course as much as it used to because, for example, elephants can't migrate, you know, when there's a drought. Um, so you've got to provide water and you've then – now you've limited, you know, elephants in a small space. If there are too many elephants, they're going to cause a, a possible negative impact on the vegetation, on the water, on other species, etc. So, So these are all these sort of natural processes that have stopped over the years and, and they differ for some, some species. Uh, and so we have to step in and take over where they can't anymore. So it's sort of artificially creating balances that would have naturally been there in an entirely open system. Yes, correct. You are 100% correct. You spoke a little bit earlier about the fact that you have to finance all of this somehow. So money does come into it in a large effect. I know that in that sense, security is a huge concern and a huge expense. Are there species that are at risk of becoming too expensive to actually look after and to protect in, in private reserves? The costs of managing and securing these areas is very high. And if you've got some species that are of 
high value or, or should I say high value to poachers or illegal syndicates does become expensive to protect them. And I mean, a couple of examples is is rhino, both black and white rhino, and, and then more recently pangolins. So these are animals that are very sought after. And the reason being is that they fetch very high prices, you know, on the black market. In the case of rhino, it's their horns and pangolins, it's their scales and flesh. So because of that high value, you then have to invest in in a lot of security measures to protect them. If you didn't have those species, it would cost far less to to secure the the, the, the park. You know, I think there'll always be sort of bushmeat poaching, subsistent poaching, and uh, illegal harvesting of you know medicinal plants and and trees and parts of that for traditional medicine like muti. But, you know, that's something that doesn't cost a lot of money to protect. I think the fact that we have both species of rhino and we have pangolin, mm-hmm. it does equate to the, the need to have much higher levels of security. And as those species dwindle, the numbers decline, you know, it, it does add pressure onto to the areas where they remain. And so what tends to happen is you then have to spend more and more and more because you are then targeted more the costs obviously are, in some cases, can be prohibitive. And then, then you have to sort of question the viability of having some of these species on your, on your reserve, you know, because, yeah, the cost will just outstrip the, the, the means of, of meeting that, um, mm-hmm. that, that need. So, so yeah, it, 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 that's a big challenge. And obviously, under the current circumstances with COVID and our reserve, most of the revenue that we get is through park fees. We need we need people to visit and to stay in our lodges to enable us to meet the costs of the reserve. So it is very challenging. Part of what makes Pinda so special, but must also be quite challenging from a management point of view, is that it's so unique in terms of habitat. Can you tell us a bit about that and about what makes Pinda so special in that in that context? Pinda is a, an incredibly special place, and it's it's special, I think, for a number of reasons. One, it's historical. Uh, the the way that the land was formed here has resulted in uh, a number of different geological formations, and, and that gave rise to different soils. We've got the La Bomba Mountains that cut through the middle of the park, which erupted or were developed many millions of years ago. And to the north of us, a lot of Pinda was covered by the ocean. We're talking also many millions of years ago. And as the oceans receded and Gondwana land broke up, again, it created very diverse soils. And as a result, you've got a lot of different vegetation types. And you've also got these these rivers that run through it and these mountain ranges. And, and so you, you've got this incredible diversity of life. And being so close to the ocean as well, you've got that that effect. And and being also subtropical, you know, it's 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 very warm. And yeah, as a result, you've got incredible diversity. You've got a lot of different plant species, endemic plant species, and and trees and grasses and and uh, birds and mammals. So for a little area like like Pinda, what makes it special is 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 its diversity. There's very few places on earth, I think, where you can see an abundance of animals, different animals, and and then also with with it being so close to the Indian Ocean, you can within a few hours you can see leatherback turtles and, and whales and 
whale sharks and dolphins and coral reefs, you know. So uh, it's quite unique in the world, I think. And, um, yeah, and there's also incredible cultural history as well. You know, it's uh, it's it's very rich in Iron Age, uh, Stone Age tools and, and evidence of all that used to occur here and all the way through to to where we are today, you know, with our modern human humans. And, and in between, you know, you've got a, a lot of history of, you know, colonial pioneer settlement and the Zulu culture uh, and, and the Zulu people having, having inhabited this area also uh, for the last 300, 400 years. So, yeah, it's got, a, it's got an incredible animal history, sort of plant history, geological history, and then a, a lot of human history as well, which, which – and, and I think the story of Pinda is also very unique, which makes it a special place. You know, it was one of the first sort of private reserves in the country that saw this vision for tourism and, you know, bringing back wildlife, reestablishing wildlife to what it used to be. But, but also involving the local people, you know, the communities that live around it in, mm-hmm. a, in a sort of a model that, that hopefully could conserve wildlife and sustain wildlife into the future. And I think it's been incredibly successful and so successful that when it was started and, and envisaged in the late 80s, many people now have followed suit. And so you look around what we see as common today, private reserves with game lodges, that never occurred was very rare in in the late 80s, early 90s. And Pinda pioneered that. That story makes it a very, very special place because there was nothing here before. It was cattle farms and pineapple farms and cotton, and it really wasn't – there was nothing here. There was a few wild animals. So the the vision of Pinda, what it is today – to what it was 30 years ago, that story is is really remarkable. And and obviously having the communities involved and seeing benefits in the wildlife and benefiting from it has been remarkable. Mm. Uh, Pinda is definitely a huge success story, and it's it's come an incredibly long way in the past 30 years. And um, you know, as you say, I think it's a model that that's been replicated or used, held up as an example in very many places, not in not just in South Africa, but throughout Africa. And similarly, I think a lot of the conservation successes that you have have really contributed towards not just the the wildlife populations of South Africa as a whole and and beyond the borders as well. Can you tell us something about that? Yeah. What do you feel have been some of Pinda's biggest successes to date? And what are the ways that you feel you've contributed towards wildlife populations and towards conservation throughout Southern Africa, basically? There was a lot of great work that happened here before my time. So I can't really take credit for all the work that, that's gone on before my time. But during my time, certainly to continue the great work that's happened before, you know, in terms of lion management, cheetah management, Rhino management, black rhino, the, the successes that we've had with black rhino conservation and, and you know, cheetahs a, is a, has been a huge success here as far as conservation of cheetah in South Africa. Yeah, I mean, we've picked up and taken on a lot of projects that, that started in the early Pinda days. And then, you know, more recently, something that's perhaps not sort of spoken of well because it's not that sexy, but mm. but the, the condition of the felt. When Pinda first took over, a lot of these areas were overgrazed and the grasses were in poor condition. There was a lot of bush encroachment. And these are all historical things from, you know, overgrazing of cattle and things like that. If you took the condition of the felt now, 
it is really, really in good condition. And that's due to sound management and monitoring and felt management policies like fire, etc. So that's been that's been incredibly uh, rewarding as well, is to see the change in in the condition of the grass and the, and the bush. There's a lot more species of grass now than there ever was, and it's really in good condition. And, and that's the foundation of, of any game reserve or wildlife area, is that you want your grass, you want to limit your soil erosion, etc., and you want diverse vegetation. So that's the one thing. Yeah, for me personally, it's been very rewarding to to be involved in you know the reintroduction of pangolins that's a sort of more recent project there's been so many milestones but just being involved in the translocation of rhinos to Botswana that's been very rewarding meeting the challenges of the rhino perching scourge we've obviously lost a few rhinos here if i look around and compare us to to other parks in South Africa, we've really lost a very, very small percentage, and that's that's through a lot of hard work and a lot of initiatives on the security side. Uh, that's been incredibly rewarding as well. Smaller things like donating lions to Rwanda, that's been a really great achievement. All these things, they take teamwork. It's the efforts of a lot of people, you know. In continuing the, the, the vision of, of Pinda, you know, from when it started in 1990 to what it is today is just to keep the vision going and, and, and building on the story of what Pinda is. Pinda has always been sort of Ambion's flagship reserve. It's You talk about vision, and I think it's where the Ambion vision is born. And I know there must have been a lot of things that were tried and tested at Pinda that were then put into practice at other and beyond lodges. Well, you've also had so many teams from even outside of Africa come to to Pinda to learn about reserve management and, and translocations and all of those, those tools, teams from India and South America. Are there any practices or any, any specific techniques that were born at Pinda that, that you look back and say, you know, wow, that's made a great contribution and that's been used elsewhere throughout the and beyond network, but also more widely in terms of learnings? Some of these innovations have really changed the way that people do conservation. Starting from the early, early days of Pinda, uh, there was many things that, that happened that had never been tried before. For example, moving elephants, large elephants, putting them in bomas, you know, buffalo, introducing buffalo and, and the testing protocols of taking buffalo with diseases and then being able to get those buffalo into private lands, introducing cheetah from Namibia into vegetation like this. There were some incredible initiatives with, well, not just cheetah, but lions as well, you know, taking unrelated lions, putting them in bomas. I mean, Pinda was the first place that used release bomas, you know, putting lions into bomas keeping them there for a number of weeks to break homing instincts and also bonding unrelated uh, lines to improve genetic diversity. Those are all translocation or animal techniques that, that were developed here that have now become standard practice. And these techniques have obviously been used now in other areas to successfully introduce animals into other areas. You know, con- things like chemical contraception on elephants, Monitoring pangolins, for example, the release of recovered pangolins, it's never been done before. So so those are just a few examples, I think, where things have been tried and tested here and have worked. 
and have become common practice, you know, standard practice now today. And yeah, so I think innovation has always been something that Pinder's been strong on. That's also one of the reasons why it makes us firstly respected, certainly in the conservation world and also in the tourism world as well, because we're a conservation-led tourism company. And, and, and I think that respect comes from all these things that, that have been tried and tested. And it's made us world leaders in the conservation world just for some of the innovative things that we've, we've done here. In your own career, um, you've worked at Pinda and you've gone to other, other places around Africa and around the Enbion circuit, and you've always kept coming back. What are some of your personal highlights or your most memorable moments during your, your time at Pinda and, and in your career? There's been really, really many. There's probably a handful that stand out. I think getting Pinda declared a, a nature reserve, a gazetted nature reserve, has been a, a big highlight. That's giving it formal protection for the next 100 years, you know. So that's, for me personally, very satisfying and kind of been involved in that process and, and pushing it over many years to get it formally declared. So now it has the same, almost the same protection status as a national park, you know. So that's been very rewarding. Being involved in, in all these translocations, each one has been different and, and, and been a highlight, you know, rhinos to Botswana and mm-hmm. lions to, to Rwanda. A, a big highlight for me was being honoured or, or, or being given the opportunity to, to bestow a name on a, on a gorilla. Attending that uh, naming ceremony, I think it was in 2014, you know, with a whole lot of other dignitaries on behalf of Pinda and beyond giving a name, uh, name to a baby gorilla. That was, that was very rewarding and, and quite a highlight. More recently, the challenge of, of reintroducing pangolins has been a, a really big highlight. It's been very hard work. It was a bit of a, I guess, a risk, you know, because we just didn't know how it was going to turn out. And, you know, you're always worried that it's not going to go well, you know. And, um, you know, pangolins are, are incredibly special animals, very endangered. And so that's been very rewarding to see that project start. And, 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 and it's it's been a success, you know. We've still got a long road to go. But, but bringing pangolins back to this area after so many, so many years of, of – been extinct, you know, have gone gone extinct. That's that's been incredibly rewarding as well. But and these are all highlights, personal highlights. But again, I always come back to the point that these things are a team effort, you know. And and without a without a team behind you and with you, many of these things are the culmination of someone else's hard work as well, you know. So, in a nutshell, those are those are just a few of the the highlights, personal highlights mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you ever actually get the time with everything that you've got going on to go out on a game drive just for yourself and and enjoy it. If you ever do, do you have a favorite species that you go out to look for or um, do you perhaps have some some favorite wildlife sightings or moments that you can share with us? Yeah, we don't really get out there just to sort of enjoy. We're often out in the bush working hard to sort of take a step back and look around you, you know, at I don't really have a particular species that that I go yeah. and look for, or I, I enjoy pretty much everything. You know, I think sometimes just being out there in the bush with birds singing sounds very cliche, mm-hmm. but I enjoy that uh, a lot. Uh, a particular favourite species definitely would be 
the rhino, uh, both black and white rhino. I think it, for me, if, if ever I see white or black rhino, I always stop and, and, and look at them, you know, and, mm. and whether it's working or on game drive, it's mm. always very satisfying to see uh, yeah. either of those species, you know, just sort of grazing or walking peacefully. I think the reason being is, you know, you know how much how much they're under pressure and and also how much how much time and effort it takes to to just get that to see that scene, you know. Yeah, and, and then just personal sort of highlights, sightings for me, it's it's I've seen so many things, I'll be honest, it's quite hard to sort of put one you know, one particular thing on it. I think many of the things is is often the achievements of of you know, reintroducing animals, you know, seeing pangolins in the wild yes. or, um, you know, seeing a baby rhino that you've, you've, you've treated or has become an orphan and, mm-hmm. and you see it back in the wild, etc. So I think those are sort of moments more through work that are, are quite satisfying and, and, and highlights, you know. So uh, it's very hard to sort of pick one, <laughs> you know, one particular thing. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I enjoy everything. Really. Mm. <laughs> well, that's that's the beauty of having the time to spend in the bush. It really is a very special place. Simon, thank you so much for taking the time to introduce us into your, your world and, and into the world of Pinder. And I look forward to having you back to tell us a little bit more about what you've got going on there. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Always good to talk about what I love. We'll chat again soon, I'm sure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to End Beyond Fireside Chats. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. If you have any comments or feedback, or would like to suggest a topic you'd like to hear us talk about, drop us an email at firesidechats at endbeyond.com. We'd love to hear from you.